So welcome, everybody. Thank you all for coming. I'm really happy to be here. Um, and um, here's my talk, uh, Everyday Ethics and Moral Distress in Mental Health Services. Let me say something about myself, though, um, uh, here to start. So I'm not a clinician. I'm a social scientist. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a medical anthropologist, which means I have a PhD in, in cultural anthropology. And my whole career, I've looked at healthcare, healthcare services, um, um, ideas about healing and disease. And I'm a classroom teacher as well here at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And so we'll be using um, the way I think people learn best is by listening and then by talking. And we'll have uh, four breakout groups um, in this, in this uh, three-hour training. Um, so you'll have a chance to meet each other if you don't know each other already and to work with, work with the ideas that I'm, I'm presenting today. Now, for two years, um, I was uh, embedded as a researcher, as a field worker, with a um, what uh, a small uh, outpatient intensive case management service service for people with very severe psychiatric illness. This is the the modality that I worked in is called ACT, which stands for Assertive Community Treatment, um, and um, ACT uh, is actually very, very, a model is very close to FSP out, out, uh, um, um, in California. Um, the sort of community treatment is a, a wraparound approach for people with severe um, mental illness. It's a, it's a case management approach. Um, the goal is to provide um, social support, um, medication, um, connection with, to other services like housing or access to Medicaid or SSDI. Um, to advocate for clients with their landlords and to and to do everything possible really for people to um, keep them um, stable, um, housed, and out of the hospital. So in that research, which is the foundation for my talk today, I shadowed people. I went out with case managers to um, visit clients in their homes. Um, I, I sat in on staff meetings. I interviewed case managers. And so a group of nine case managers one psychiatrist and one nurse. I interviewed everybody. Um, and from that experience of mine, again, two years embedded um, uh, in, that, in that work group, um, I kind of put together the ideas, which again, I'm talking about uh, today. So that's me in a nutshell. Okay, so um, I'd like to talk about ethics in practice. And this is a, in some way, this is an ethics talk, um, but it's a different kind of ethics talk. Um, I'm not going to try to regulate what you do as a clinician. I mean, I'm not a clinician, so that I, I'm not able to do that. I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not trying to control in any way what you do as a clinician, um, unlike required you know, courses and you know, ethics and boundaries, which sometimes turn into a list of do's and don'ts. That's not this talk. What I want to do this morning is to look at why your work can raise, can raise difficult ethical questions. Um, and then use our time here to learn maybe a different way to think about those questions. Um, uh, it, it kind of provide a new, maybe uh, what I hope is a new vocabulary or a new framework to ask those questions. So it's all about the questions themselves, where they come from, how to work with them. It's not about you know, the right or wrong answer. Um, and um, let me say uh, here at the start then that working in community-based mental health settings um, especially in the public sector, is very difficult. And um, here are two quotes. Two of the most oppressed groups in, in mental health are clients and their case managers. Basically, uh, case managers are the lowest paid, the lowest on the organizational hierarchy, and the least credentials. 
And yet they have the most, the most cases and the most, um, pardon me, the most uh, uh, ambitious goals established for their work. They also have to complete the most paperwork, um, go to the same meetings as, as, as others and, and, uh, and, uh, and are the most supervised members of the organization. Case managers have the least control over their jobs and they have the least influence over organizational or client matters. So why am I standing here, sitting here today? You know, I think the ethical issues that um, make this sort of work with um, this sort of um, mental health practice so difficult also make it so frustrating. And even worse, I think these sort of issues, the ones we'll talk about today, are rarely talked about. Um, uh, in my experience, again, um, uh, as, as a researcher embedded in, in an outpatient um, in, in terms of a case management program, these issues that we'll talk about can very easily get covered over by the busyness of everyday work. In the long run, though, these issues can make people feel horrible about their job, these ethical issues. They can cause burnout. They can, in fact, in the long run, they can push the whole system away from the ideal of person-centered care. Because if you start to feel horrible about the job for these reasons that are, we have up on the, on the, on the, on the PowerPoint, um, then you might quit. And if more and more people quit, then agencies you know, have to deal with high turnover and that's bad for patient care. And of course, burned out clinicians who go through the motions and, do, and nothing more are even worse for patient care. So if we don't take the time to figure out the ethical landscape, if I can use that phrase, the ethical landscape that we're walking through every day, and the whole system starts to collapse. And that's what I, 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 I saw that risk up close um, um, in, in my own work. Now, I believe in assertive community treatment and, um, and also the FSP model. And I believe in the, in the necessity of the mental health workforce of which you are all a part. Um, these are, you know, this is clearly needed, and some of these models are the best models are, are, that, are, that are out there. But even in, but in mental health work, even the best model depends on the self-understanding of the people who operate it. So ethics matter, not just because you should do the right thing, right? Not, not just because you should follow the rules, like about confidentiality and boundaries and all the rest, but because um, having a deeper understanding of the frustrations of this line of work, of how it can become so ethically murky Will make you a more confident, more confident, and a more dedicated professional. So that's my that's my pitch. Um, so we'll talk this morning about some standard ethical issues in mental health work, and these include um, boundaries and uh, dual agencies and um, confidentiality and equal treatment. But we'll do it with a twist from a kind of different angle. And um, these are my goals for the talk. Um, I'd like to look carefully at everyday ethics as they arise in typical cases faced by case managers working with people with se se severe mental illness. I'd like to develop some new ways to discuss and resolve ethics issues. Again, not to find like the guaranteed right answer, but how to discuss them, become conscious of them in order to minimize the experience of frustration and futility. And um, along the way, and especially at the end, learn the ethical danger zones. Uh, like the perfect storm that um, uh, makes this sort of work that you're involved in so ethically complicated and that may predictably arise um, in this sort of practice. So let's begin by talking about this phrase, which I just 
introduced, Everyday Ethics. Um, so I wrote a book, and here's the cover, uh, published uh, 10 years ago, um, uh, called Everyday Ethics, Voices from the Frontline of Community Psychiatry. And uh, my, my talk here today is basically a, a, a version, developed version, frankly, more reader-friendly, um, um, but that arose um, out of my two years embedded with this work group. Now, let's talk about the difference between textbook ethics and everyday ethics. Now, textbook ethics, and I, I wrote all what, what, what it means there on the, on the, on the left-hand side of your screen. This is, this, is a, this is a standard understanding, the standard view, what, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, right? And you could call that normative ethics. Um, um, textbook ethics is the um, domain of bioethics as a discipline. And as I'm sure you know, you can get a, if you're interested in bioethics, you can get a master's degree in bioethics. I'm sure UCLA and other you know, universities around Los Angeles area have lots of programs in it. Um, bioethics is based on philosophy and the law, right? It's very systematic. Um, it is uh, carefully reasoned, carefully debated. It's all written out in formal codes. In fact, um, I could probably, um, if I jumped up, get, went, went to my bookshelf, I could give you, show you the AMA bioethics handbook. Um, these are abstract ideas and norms that supposedly apply across different cases and contexts. And textbook ethics is backed up by legal authority. You know, if you if you disobey enough textbook ethics, you could get into trouble and you could lose your job. However, the right-hand side is what I call everyday ethics. Now, it's descriptive. In other words, I'm not going to tell you what, what to do and what not to do, but I want to help, to help us understand and describe how ethical issues arise in everyday practice. In fact, everyday ethics is a matter of what people say to each other, you know, face-to-face, -face, informally, right? Their comments, their reflections on what makes the job so hard. Here's an example, a hallway conversation, frankly, between you or <laughs> and, 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 a, and a coworker. You know, you say, you know, I really had a bad morning. I was talking with a gentleman, um, someone I've just started to work with. He really objected to our agency's policy about, about, about money. And I, I assume you all know about the representative payee system, rep payee system. Uh, this fellow said, uh, you know, he wants, our, wants more money. I said, I'm just trying to do the right thing and, you know, hold back the money. This, my client got really upset with me. I'm not feeling good about my job right now. That's everyday ethics. Okay, that's it right there. You know, I'm not quite sure what to do. Um, 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 I'm feeling bad about things. I'm frustrated. And a coworker says, well, you know something? I dealt with a situation like that last year. Let me tell you how I handled it. That's an example of everyday ethics. It's spoken. It's informal. It's tailored to the, to the um, pardon me, um, to, the, to, to, to your particular job in the case at hand. It's backed up by personal experience. It's backed up by, backed up by intuition. You know, your coworker is not going to say, you know something in like, uh, you know, uh, state, of, state of California, civil code, you know, chapter 19, you know, line three, it says this, right? That's formal ethics. We're talking about something different here. So here's the definition of everyday ethics. It is um, the reflections about right and wrong made in the midst of ordinary clinical work. Right at the time it happens, you know, the next morning staff meeting. It's an aspect of personal moral experience, not laws or codes of conduct. The key word "not" is is hidden, but um, you know, um, um, uh, kind of like kind of like what you feel um, in your gut, right? The way that you figured it out yourself, not somebody else's laws or codes of conduct. Um, 
and it is expressed privately, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, or just with other members of your work team. So everyday ethics is a kind of ethics you don't call in a lawyer, okay? You don't call up the ethics committee. Um, I mean, sometimes you might need to do that for sure, um, but I'm talking about something else, all the stuff that doesn't involve, you know, the sort of authoritative um, um, experts. So again, I, I need to say that my talk here is not about normative ethics. Um, uh, we'll be talking about some you know, in, important issues in, in um, mental health practice, uh, but I don't know how to solve them. I cannot tell you what you should do, but we can discover together what kinds of practical wisdom you already have and what ethical decision-making looks like in real time. So that's my little view of the world. Um, well, let's take, let's take the next step now. There are two kinds of everyday ethics that uh, I wanna talk about, moral dilemma and moral distress. And I wanna make some very clear, um, sort of like a classroom presentation a little bit here, really clear definitions. Here's a moral dilemma. A moral dilemma means uh, when two or more clear moral principles apply, but they support mutually inconsistent courses of action. Okay, in other words, you actually just don't know what to do. You could go this way, you could go that way. There's like a fork in the road. Um, each one, each way is supported, is supportable, but you just don't know which, um, 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 which, which fork to take. And in order to make this clear, um, let's now jump into a case study. We have a bunch of case studies in this, in, in, in this talk. And, um, and you know, actually, this, uh, if you know the uh, famous American poet, Marianne Moore, who said, the world is made up of stories, not atoms. So sometimes stories are the best way to, to understand this. So here's a case study of a moral dilemma, which I call the tax rebate. Um, let's read through it. Um, it takes three slides to read through it. And then uh, we'll talk, we'll go develop a way of um, working it out. So the, the client here is, I, these are all, of course, uh, pseudonyms. Jack Berger, a middle-aged man with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Um, and these are real cases from, from my own research. He takes antipsychotic medication, but continues to complain about his voices. Right? Now, several attempts at transitional unemployment have been unsuccessful because he has disputes. He lives with his brother in a basement apartment. And I would visit there a lot, actually, going out with the case managers. It's a neighborhood well-known for gang and drug, drug activity. Um, he wants to move. Right, this, this guy wants to move, and he would need. Um, this is a very inexpensive city. Need eight hundred dollars cash in order to pay for the security deposit and one month's rent. Now, over the past um, several years, Jack has struggled with cocaine use, and one year ago, after receiving his tax refund from the state, he began a three-day cocaine binge. By the time it ended, he had sold all his furniture. And he, and he was soon evicted from the, uh, his apartment, which was in a safer neighborhood. This is how he ended up living, living on, on, on his brother's couch. Right? Um, now, the case management agency is a representative payee for Jack. And um, it just received his state tax refund for about $1,000. So I spoke with Tom, his case manager. And um, this is what Tom says. The dilemma is, do you give him the check? It's like a loaded gun. Do you hypermanage it, hypermanage it down to the last nickel for him? And he will be asking for it. You know, I mean, I mean, I know, I know, I know this guy, Jack. I mean, he's gonna he's gonna tell ask me tomorrow, did you get my check yet? 
when can I get the check? I mean, he knows that the check is for him. Um, so it's a payee dilemma. Supposedly these checks are made out to him and they are made out to him and we are not supposed to manage it for him. But in Jack's case, I just don't know. So here's the question. What is the dilemma that Tom faces? And here's my way of working through. The first thing to do to work through this kind of moral dilemma is to lay out very clearly what are the two possible courses of action, okay? Um, so we begin with the left-hand side of this, of this uh, little table. Um, so the concrete decision that Tom, the case manager here faces, should I withhold the check or should I give it to him? Right, two possible courses of action. Now, in the middle uh, column, what are the personal motives that would support each course of action? What, um, in other words, what are the reasons to begin with why Jack, Tom might decide not to give Jack his money? Well, and then, and then, that, and then the 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 um, the bottom line: what are the reasons why Tom might decide to, in fact, say, "Okay, here it is. Here's here here's a thousand dollars." Well, the first row, you know, um, the personal motive might be to um, protect his clients, you know, in assertive community treatment, uh, this model, um, one of the mandates is to keep every client housed. And so in this case, given Jack's track record, um, giving him the tax, say state tax refund may well lead to loss of housing, right? There may be another cocaine binge. However, the other possibility um, on the bottom is to give him the money. And um, you know, uh, give, give, give him the money and and, and give him um, um, intensive support and using it as a, as a security deposit for a new apartment. The personal motive here might be to help help him to, to, to become more in, uh, independent. I mean, who wants to live on on his brother's couch? You know, to help him integrate better in in you know in, into um, you know being being a, being a full citizen with full rights and 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 and, and as and his own um, um, a living space. Um, after all, here's somebody who did have, uh, who does have a, a previous history of independent housing, and maybe he could use the refund check to get a new, a new apartment. Now, finally, the third column, this is now the textbook ethics principles. So we'll dip into this just a little bit. And since like the middle column is everyday ethics, the, the third column on the right-hand side is textbook ethics principle. Now, if you know anything about bioethics, you can uh, fill in the blank yourself. Um, uh, the first course of action would um, to that is to um, withhold the check would fit the principle of beneficence, right? In other words, you want to do the right, you, you want to um, do something good for the patient, and in particular, a, a, a derivative of beneficence here is paternalism. Now, paternalism—the word often gets a bad rap, but paternalism simply means um, benevolent protection, right? Benevolent protection. Um, now, you could, uh, however, also justify the second option, that is to give him the $1,000 check by saying, well, I'm going to, you know, he, he, he has autonomy. It is his money. It is his money. And um, um, I must respect his sovereignty. And this is the kind of lingo that bioethics people use. I'll respect his sovereignty. He has a right to make his own decisions. In fact, he has a right to fail, like any one of us. Right, like any one of us, you know, we have the right to waste our money, um, and uh, and there you have these textbook principles: beneficence, 
on the one at the, at the top level and autonomy at the bottom level. So here's it's a, it's a dilemma, right? Because both courses of action can be justified. Both courses of action affirm important principles, but doing one precludes doing the other, right? If you obviously if you give them the money, you can't take it back. Um, so doing one precludes the other. Each course of action has its own costs and benefits, and it's a balancing act. Okay. Um, so now let's move to a breakout group. Here it is. And what I'd like you to do is um, describe a moral dilemma that you have personally encountered in your daily work. Okay, I mean, I gave you a case study. Do a little mini case study of your own, right? A moral dilemma uh, that, that, that you encountered in your work and keep it easy like with two possible actions. Although if life is complicated, maybe there are three or four different things that you considered. The easy way of doing it is just you know, break it down to two possible actions that you considered. Talk about why each one was potentially convincing. And if you can connect each action to like a textbook ethical norm, in other words, some, some higher level principle, some higher, like what, what are the higher level stakes of doing a as opposed to B, what are the higher level stakes of doing B as opposed to A? Okay, so again, I gave you one case study of a moral dilemma. Take 10 minutes, think about, I mean, ideally just like the last week of work or the last month of work. Um, you know, if, if you've been on the job a long time and uh, this kind of thing doesn't bother you anymore, think about your first month on the job when you were a new employee, um, what kind of moral dilemma did you, did you encounter? Okay, now moral distress is different from moral dilemma. Moral, here's the definition. Moral distress means when you know the right thing to do, but institutional constraints, like the outside world, makes it nearly impossible to pursue the right course of action. And this is the definition, it's an old definition 40 years ago from Andrew Jameton, who talking about nursing ethics, actually. Um, so do you see the difference? Moral dilemma is, is the case where you, you, you genuinely do not know what to do. Um, you can go this way or that way, different, di different, 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 different principles, different, different motives. Moral, moral distress arises when you do know the right thing to do, but you can't do it, right? You're blocked from doing it. And to make this clear, I'm going to use two case studies. The first is has nothing to do with mental health, uh, uh, but it has to do with uh, pro-life, pro-choice. And the second one is a, is a, a case from, from my own research, and we'll do a, a breakout group with a second one. But I just wanna you know, hammer home the, the definition, the conceptual definition of moral distress. So here's a case study. And a pro-choice physician is working in a Catholic hospital um, in a state where abortion is now illegal. By the way, I'm from Wisconsin, that's where I'm talking right now, and abortion is not legal in, uh, for about a little over one year now in, in, in my state. So the physician greets a new patient, a 21-year-old female pregnant in her first trimester who requests an abortion. The um, physician is convinced that referring the patient to an, an abortion provider out of state is the right thing to do, but the hospital rules prevent her from making the referral. Now, as you all know, this is a, you know, a very complicated issue and it's always in motion. In some states, the state law would also pre prevent her from making the referral. Um, so a moral distress case study, because she knows what for her, okay, uh, try to, you know, move out of your own 
convictions here, but so just, just look at this case. For her, she knows what is the right thing to do, um, but she cannot do it. She's blocked from doing it. Um, now, to work through a moral distress case study, I would suggest following this little um, rubric. First, what is the clinician's, first determine what is the clinician's um, first uh, pre preferred course of action. Then talk about uh, the motives driving that preferred course of action, right? What does she want to do? Why does she want to do it? Third, clearly articulate the obstacles to that preferred action, right? What's blocking her? And fourth, what are some possible compromises if they exist? I mean, not all situations offer a compromise, but are there comp possible compromises? Is there a way forward despite this issue? Okay, so a moral, this is not, it's not a dilemma where you, you don't know what to do. This is a moral distress where you do know what to do, but you just can't do it. Um, and um, I'd like you to think about this for a second. Uh, this won't be a breakout group, but but just think on your own, you know, an issue that I think many, many Americans are um, trying to trying to puzzle um, um, uh, puzzle through, trying to work through. Um, put yourself in the in in the shoes of uh, the um, of that physician. Um, and answer in the chat. I mean, clearly we know the purpose of action. And to answer in the chat, what do you think are the personal motives driving that action? We know the obstacle. And what do you think are the possible compromises and ways forward? Take, it, take a minute, think about it, and uh, throw up some answers in the, uh, in the chat box. So personal motives, duty to serve her patients, okay. Duty to respect their wishes, that's interesting. Because uh, even in bioethics, um, patient autonomy is, is, is crucial. Another person says a personal motive would be the belief that a person has the right to do what they will with their body. Abortion is healthcare. The obstacles are clearly hospital rules for sure. And possible compromise, not officially refer, but suggest her visit an out-of-state clinic. So a compromise, not an official referral, but, but a sort of informal suggestion, okay? Another person says being approached, wanting to help the patient as a motive. Compromise, perhaps verbally tell the patient what her options are since the doctor cannot make a formal referral. Okay, so another person has, yes, exactly, has, has, has the same notion. Duty, duty to provide care, right? And one person says an obstacle to the preferred action is a risk of job loss. Right? And there also is a risk of patient poor outcome. That's interesting. Motive, prior, prioritizing patient's well-being. Possible compromise, suggesting website where she can access information. Now that's a great compromise. It's a, that's a great suggestion, right? Um, you know, compromise here means workaround. Another way, an, another of saying it, ask her if she considered doing research on states that would able to meet her need. Good point. Hypothetical option to find uh, other, other options. Duties to respect patient wishes. Yeah, I think the um, I think these are very strong answers, right? And and of course, everybody has their own morality and their ethics about this. But from the standpoint of that of that of that of that physician, these would be some clear motives, um, which justify her preferred course of action, which again, you know, hits a brick wall, right? There's a you know, it's it's or a seemingly brick wall, um, 
And that's when moral distress becomes, becomes the right category to use to understand this. Okay, great. I'm going to move on now. Thank you all for, to everybody who uh, contributed to, to, to the chat. So now let's move to a, um, um, a mental health practice case of moral distress. And again, this is another case from my own research. And let's go through it uh, screen by screen. The patient or the client in this case is a guy named Ben Taft, um, 34 years old. I call this fast food delivery. He's diagnosed with schizophrenia. He is compliant with his meds, adherent with his meds for 10 years. However, uh, he now weighs 300, he put on a lot of weight. He now weighs 372 pounds, and that has given him significant physical disability. As you may all know, as I'm sure you all know, atypical antipsychotics have a side effect of metabolic syndrome and, and weight gain. And that's, you know, that, that's a very serious, very serious issue um, in this line of work. So here's the staff meeting and the case manager named Nadia, of course, these are all pseudonyms, wonders how to proceed. And here's what Nadia says in the staff meeting. He'll be immobile when he hits 400 pounds. Even now he has to sit and recuperate after just a short walk. He says, I can't walk too much. My hips hurt because of when I was homeless. Now, the reality is I'm not going to get him to, to I'm not going to be able to get him to exercise given where he lives, given his condition. I'm not going to be able to get him to eat better. In fact, where he lives, which is um, a room and board residence, all they do is sit and eat. Um, he sleeps 20 hours a day. That's not life. That's just existing. So that's Nadia's perspective. And he present, she, she, she presents this to, 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 to the staff, to, to, to the team. So the team discusses what to do. Should they change his current treatment plan? Um, which now includes home visits uh, three times a week with delivery of fast food lunches as an engagement tool. And this is, uh, you all know in, in this kind of situation, this guy's been a, a, you know, on, the, on, on the caseload for 10 years. There's a whole backstory about him. And um, fast food lunches do seem to work as an engagement tool. Um, and uh, that, that, that's, that's what they do. Now, Dr. Young, who's a consulting psychiatrist on the team, tells the, tells the group, okay, tell me when he hits 400. He's on Zyprexa, and it's the only med he's ever stayed on. So the, so, so the team, during the staff meeting, decides to leave the, the treatment plan unchanged. Well, as you might imagine, Nadia doesn't like this. And I talked to her afterwards, and she says, we are failing, right? You know, this just happened, okay? I disagree with what just happened. We failed miserably. We're still gonna buy him food and deliver it. We're deferring to Dr. Young, the psychiatrist, and all these other folks are either um, LPCs or MSWs. We're depending on him to come up with a solution to the obesity problem. Um, but we need to change our approach. Why does fast food have to be the engagement tool, right? We're not, we're not coming up with a plan. Like we're joking about it. And that's wrong. We're joking about it. We're waiting until he hits 400 pounds, but no, we really shouldn't wait. She says that's medically and morally wrong. Okay, so take the time, you know, you know think about her experience here. Um, she, 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 is, she knows what to do. She, she knows what she wants to do. She knows what is the right thing to do from, by her lights, right? From her perspective. The staff meeting says no, and this is her response. So he, this is a topic for a breakout group. And in your breakout group, <clears throat> again, as we did with the earlier case, um, um, what is her preferred course of action, right? 
what are the personal motives that are driving her preferred action? Right? Why does she say that's medically and morally wrong? What are the obstacles to her preferred course of action? And uh, can you think, you know, kind of beyond the case, right, in, in a more creative way, in, in, in you know, using your own, your own intuition and experience, what are some possible compromises and ways forward? Okay, again, a case study of moral distress. She knows what to do. She's blocked. Let's analyze it. And in particular, let me say that the, the possible compromises, well, let me say two things that really struck me. Um, I totally understand and the, the point that, that it's easy to get complacent. And it's easy, especially if somebody's been on a caseload and somebody's been working, you know, you know, on uh, um, on the same team for ten years, and you just accept the old ways, as you said it, and don't even try to find new ways. Um, you know, I, I see that happening. I saw that happening a lot, um, and um, you know, it's, I kind of understand why that does happen because. Uh, you know, this sort of work, at least the case, the case management team I was, I was with, there was a crisis a week, you know, or sometimes like a, a crisis a day. And um, if there is, if there is, uh, you know, we had like 75 people on, on the, uh, on the caseload and um, one person was always in crisis and to keep the other 74 kind of stable and like not worry about them, it's almost like a necessity for, it's almost, it seems like a workplace necessity. But it has a it has a real serious danger. Um, I also liked a lot what you said about the comp possible compromises. Um, I think they're great compromises. Like it doesn't have to be either like my way or the highway. You know, fast food, uh, the same kind of fast food, or nothing at all. Um, you know, inside the setup, like inside the the um, kind of arrangement that had has already been decided on you can, one can fiddle with it. I mean, there are ways of moving things around and taking small steps and make they make things, uh, get some improvements, you know, um, even minor improvements, but that's a way forward. And I'll, I'm gonna come back to this at the, at, at the end, that kind of a coming attraction, sometimes finding a way forward, even if it's just a baby step, actually does a lot to address moral distress, right? Uh, the worst part of moral distress and which we'll talk about in a second, is um, the feeling that you are absolutely, um, absolutely frozen, right? Like there actually is nothing that you can do, right? The outside forces, in this case, the psychiatrist, right? Is so strong that, you know, your voice is not heard at all. And that's, that's the danger, right? That's a, that, that's a big danger. Great, let's move on um, to talk about moral distress a little bit more. And just first, just to review, again, um, kind of big issue. Um, if you remember nothing more from this training, please remember this, that there's a moral dilemma and a moral distress, and they're not the same. A dilemma when you don't know the right thing to do, um, because two principles contradict each other. Moral distress when you do know the right thing to do, but something on the outside, and you know, I'm using the, sorry for the jargon, institutional constraint, make it really hard if not impossible to act on your conviction. Now, moral distress is not just a philosophical category. And research have looked at this, um, you know, people in situations, uh, especially like in mental health care work, who experience moral distress, they feel it in their body. You know, they say, and these are quotations from um, um, in, in an article um, reporting on research, people say, I sweat, I'm upset, I shake. 
the rest of the day is shot because I'm frustrated and uh, and angry. People can't sleep. You know, they feel nauseous, right? And then there are psychological signs, and um, these involve, as you might imagine, just discomfort and embarrassment. Involve isolation. If you're the only person who you know seems to have a problem with who um, really opposes what the majority wants to do, you feel isolated. You feel guilty, and at the at the extreme, you know, you feel like your your own you feel violated in the sense of your your morals, like your most deeply felt, most deeply held ideas about how to be, how to act, how to be a good person, are violated, and that is not a good way to feel. Um, I know that, um, but I think some other people are working with veterans. If you know the literature on moral injury um, um, among veterans, um, this is on the same landscape. Moral distress and moral injury are kind of on the same landscape. Um, you know, moral injury, of, you know, referring to veterans, mean, means being asked to do something, being required, you know, you know, um, in service, right? Um, when when you're in the service, being required to do something that really goes against your deepest moral views of the world, and yet you have to do it, right? You have to do it, and afterwards, you know, you feel horrible. Um, and then there's an effect on the work team. And I mentioned this at the very start of my talk. You know, when people experience moral distress on a on a regular basis, it burns them out. Um, and uh, who wants to continue to work in a, in a setting that um, you know re requires you to put up with decisions that are not yours and that go against what you really believe? Uh, you're going to quit, right? I mean, I would. You know, so there's a rapid turnover um, and. Um, and a lower level of care as a result. Um, I will say in the um, assertive community treatment team where I worked as a researcher, there was a nearly 100% turnover in, in, in a, the two year period I was there. That's not good. <laughs> um, um, people would you know, they'd come in, they'd last for six months or 18 months, and then they'd get out of there because um, partially because of the moral distress. Um, now we can, talk in a little bit more general though about moral distress because there are some predictable drivers of it and what I call the predictable danger zones of moral distress and one is workplace hierarchies and we've seen that we've seen that already in some of these case studies so um, um, in, uh, in in the fast food delivery case with um, um, Ben Taft and Nadia um, there is a psychiatrist there who is kind of calling the shots. And if you're a case manager, you're, you know, below, below the psychiatrist. And uh, that's going to, that, that's the setup. Another um, standard cause of moral distress in mental health work is a conflict between what the program guidelines say and your own commitment to clients. And here's a case study about that. Um, a case study that comes, uh, uh, from uh, the COVID epidemic, um, lockdown decisions. Let's go through this case. And um, um, this, this, this one is pretty, uh, it's difficult. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Um, so during the April, 2020, um, the first COVID lockdown period, um, Sheila Watkins, um, who was a mother of two young kids, experienced a relapse of bipolar disorder. She had to be hospitalized. Now her case manager drove her and her two small children to the hospital 
in her own, in the case manager's own car, instead of using a taxi. So she went against the agency's rule. The case manager said, I wanted to limit the number of people involved and to minimize the risk, that is the medical risk, you know, risk of infection to um, um, Ms. Watkins. Now, during the trip, um, the case manager had a, had a mask on her, but she decided not to wear it, again, against agency policy. She said, because the kids were already scared. The kids were already scared. Their mom was gonna be taken away, right? They shouldn't have a masked stranger take their mother away. So after a hospital admission, Linda, uh, that is the case manager, um, um, drove the children back home and spent time with the kids indoors, cooking them lunch as they waited for their aunt to arrive. And she recognized the increased risk to all parties. Now, later that day, uh, she said she felt anxious. Well, she said she, she felt anxious throughout the whole day. Now, her supervisor reprimanded her, right? Um, and so that's not, that's not fun. Uh, Linda said, well, I'm used to assessing risk in others, but now I'm a potential risk myself. And it makes me feel very uneasy. She concludes, I was determined to make their mother's hospital admission as easy as possible for the kids because they will remember this day for a long time. And that's a case study from an article from a, a social work journal published in 2020. So I want to do actually another work, um, breakout group. So it's like two in a row here, but again, I think the cases is, the cases is how you really understand this stuff. Um, um, so again, um, work through this case. What was Linda's preferred course of action? Why did she prefer to do things that way? What were the obstacles to her preferred course of action? And this time, she acted contrary to policy. Okay, it's clear as day. Do you agree with her decision to act that way? Okay. So again, there's another opportunity to, 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 to work with the notion of, of, of moral distress. Um, she already, but unlike the last case, Linda, all, you know, we, we, we have the, the data here, Linda already did something to bring her, to live out her preferred course of action. Do you agree that it was the right thing to do? Or do you, do you see many, any, any other compromises? Um, um, how would you handle this case of moral distress if, 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 if it were you? Uh, I, I was taking notes and the way, and you know, when you say policy is there for a reason, absolutely. Um, um, and uh, what, I was, what I was most struck with though, was what he said there at the end, even if she, uh, what do I say? Um, um, the, the, the effort to find a compromise and a way forward um, should be really broad. In other words, here's a case where um, your suggestion basically is, is for her to follow, she could have followed the policy to the letter of the law at one stage, and then afterwards go back to the kids and tell them why she did it and what the risks were, explain to them, debrief them, hear their emotional reactions at the time. Um, and, and I mean, I would call that a good compromise. I would call that a good way to move forward. Um, you know, an issue there though, is that of course the kids are not your clients, but in a sense in this sort of work, in a sense, they are your de facto clients, maybe not by the letter of the law. 
so lots lots in there yeah there's there there's a lot in there um and i actually don't know what i would do if if i were linda um the other thing i want to um um mentioned though uh, at, at, about this case that um, there's a kind of an ethical issue that is implicit in what you said. Uh, let me just make it explicit. Here's someone who is, um, well, it's, it's a case to some extent of boundaries, right? Um, um, because I think Linda wanted to be, wanted to show that she was not just a professional kind of doing the sort of st standard strict, like, um, uh, by the book, professional job, but she was also, in some ways, um, I mean, you know, enough of a friend to to Miss Watkins that she had the best interests of their children at heart. So she was kind of, you know, thinking, thinking outside the box of the, you know, narrow professional professional role, um, and talking and and thinking about um, what kind of what kind of relationship she actually had with Miss Watkins and with with the kids. So it is an issue of boundaries to some extent. And I wanna talk about that now in more detail. Um, okay. Now, here are three ideas about boundaries and the ethics of keeping strong boundaries or um, uh, um, breaking the boundaries. Now, the usual approach in in uh, I would say like probably 90, 90% or 80% of mental health per, you know, professional work is that the clinician has the obligation um, to frame the relationship as therapeutic. Like this is a therapeutic relationship. This is not a social acquaintance. This is not, you know, a friendship. This is not, you know, uh, 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 um, anything but a kind of professional client relationship. And these are the ethics of strong boundaries. And here's a quotation about it. Um, this is one of these standard um, um, textbooks of, of bioethics. Um, the authors say that the effective and ethical therapist works to establish and maintain a boundary that, despite often appearing artificial, eventually does provide the emotional distance for the patient to develop an autonomous sense of self. So it's textbook ethics, right? And kind of complicated language. Um, the author, by the way, I think the first author, Laura Roberts, for a long time was, uh, she's a psychiatrist and she was um, chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford. So, um, you know, kind of a prominent position and she's, sort of, this is like the view from, kind of like the view from the Vatican, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, um, so boundaries in this sense are like a clear bright line difference, right? They must remain firm. They should never be broken. Well, Outpatient work in settings like assertive community treatment or FSP, if you're, if you're a case manager, boundaries look a little different. Um, here's someone, uh, Mona Wasso, um, actually from Madison, Wisconsin, just down the road from where I live. She says, in any given 10 minutes, a professional in a community support program like FSP or, or, or ACT may be expected to take a consumer out for a coffee, which is friendship, at which time she, he or she will hand out um, uh, medication, which is like a professional. Uh, where are the guidelines for these blurring of boundaries? I think what Wasso is saying here is that boundaries are like inevitably blurred. Once you leave the hospital, once you leave a sort of middle class, you know, suburban 
private office, face-to-face -face psychotherapy relationship, and you get into the community and you're working with the kind of you know, the, the, the kind of individuals that you know we're talking about here, um, boundaries are going to be blurred. There's no way around it. Here's a third view about boundaries. And this is from an indigenous rights activist in Australia from a long time ago. But uh, she said, um, um, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time, right? But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Now, the word liberation is sort of old-fashioned political term. Another way of saying this is that um, uh, if you come here and you set yourself up as an expert who has all the answers, you know, please, um, you know, I, I, I understand what you're trying to do, but in a sense, um, it, uh, what I really need is we need a peer relationship. We need a personal connection um, to be helped uh, in the way that I need help. I need to be recognized um, in a more, in a way that does not involve boundaries uh, uh, as are usually understood. So in this sense, maybe there's not a, 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 such a hard and fast boundary between a social worker and a client, or maybe there are moments in which that boundary can be, can be lessened. So here's some, um, here's some questions. Actually, before I want to, actually, let, let me just go back one, one slide there before we get into these, these, these quotations. I just, want, I just wanted to you know, hold this in our head for a second. You have an extreme, like two extremes, two extreme ways of understanding boundaries. The first is like really, really strict, right? The strict boundary of a psychiatrist and a patient in a hospital. The set, another extreme, something which is a shared project of respecting each other, of recognizing each other, of, you know, of, of, of showing your client that they, that, that they have dignity and they deserve to have it. Um, so on one extreme, there is the goal of autonomy um, and the self-authored life. On the other extreme, a sort of collective goal, a sort of you know, mutual recognition that demands cooperation between equals. So big, big, big spectrum here. Um, and I leave it to you, to each one of you, to weave your own ethics about boundaries um, from this array of possibilities. Um, I'm going to glance into chat. When you're field-based, uh, the blurring of boundaries is unavoidable. And that's, I think that's correct. Someone says here, um, boundaries are imperative for all parties involved, for the client's rights and for the professionals to be a guide, not an enabler. And that is also correct. That's also correct. Um, um, again, as I said at the start, I don't have the answer. Um, but I think um, opening up the discussion, you know, uh, um, um, what sort of is, is important, what sort of boundaries are going to be breached even, and, and you can't avoid that. And then when, when should these boundaries be kept strong in order for the therapeutic work to, uh, to proceed? Um, so people will disagree about cases such as the following. Should you go out to a movie on a free Saturday with someone who is lonely and isolated, knowing that an outing would be good for him? Should you accept a flower vase? You know, just like little uh, flower vase that you, that you can buy and you know, in a, at Goodwill, given to you in appreciation of your help through a client's difficult marital separation, knowing that the giver, that the client, has a problem with overspending. I mean, I think either a yes or no decision in each of these cases is potentially justifiable. Um, there are good reasons to not go to the movie. There are good reasons to go to the movie. 
right? Good reasons not to accept the gift, good reasons to um, 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 accept it. Um, so to some extent, we're in the realm of moral dilemmas to like link back to the notion, uh, you know, the good reasons either way, but we're also in the realm of moral distress because there's always the possibility that a frontline clinician like you all will make a decision in one direction, but your supervisor will make the decision in the other direction. And so if you and if you uh, are, are if you know that in advance, you will feel that you cannot put into action the, the decision that you want to. And that is a setup for moral moral distress. There's one other person in the chat room. Um, right. So um, the person says, boundaries is about teamwork. We're here for another. The client is self-empowered. It is our job to help them to find it, not to take away their empowerment. Yeah, so the notion of empowerment is crucial. There's a lot to talk about. In fact, that one little paragraph about boundaries and teamwork and empowerment is worth another three-hour <laughs> three ethics training. Very complicated stuff. And someone says, but if we do the morally correct thing, we'll be, would we be at risk of losing our job? That is, that, that is a danger. That is a danger. In fact, that issue right there, I mean, that's, you know, you've hit the nail on the head. That is the moral distress, you know, reality. Um, and for that reason, by the way, so I, I'm, I've been trying to underscore the need to find some compromise, find some compromises, find some ways to move forward, honoring your own moral impulses, but also not losing your job, right? That has to be the way forward. And we'll come back to that. I want to move on and talk about another kind of hot button um, bioethics issue. And that is um, treating people equally right? The equal treatment for equal clients. Um, uh, now, this is actually an, an, an a textbook ethics issue, which is called equity. Um, equity here in, in, this, in this context just means um, equal treatment for all people. Don't play favorites. Not letting personal preferences uh, affect how you treat one client over another. In other words, um, don't play favorites with clients. Now, that is a textbook ethics issue, but it creates a lot of everyday ethical kind of situations. And um, um, I'd like to go through uh, at least one, and depending on our time, maybe two. Um, two cases, one is a case study of moral, moral, a moral dilemma about not playing favorites, treating people equally. Another is a case study of moral distress. The first case study I call uh, malt liquor and bad livers. And this is a case from my own research. Um, so the person here is named Ken Underwood, a pseudonym, Ken Underwood, and he is an older gentleman um, in his mid-60s. He carries a dual diagnosis for many years of schizophrenia and substance use disorder. For a long time, he's lived alone in his own apartment, but when he drinks heavily, he tends to neglect food shopping and preparation. So he, he just stops eating, right? And, and eight months ago, uh, um, during one of these drinking bouts, he, his weight dropped dangerously low, and the case management team decided to go grocery shopping with him and strictly monitor how much he was drinking and how, how much he was eating. So another here's another actually rep payee issue. His case manager named Mary says in a staff meeting, uh, Ken wants more money per week. He wants an extra $20. And you know, it's a representative payee situation. So the agency is getting his uh, SSDI check directly from the government. Ken wants another $20 a week. Somebody says, oh, that buys a lot of cheap malt liquor. How much does he drink? 
case manager says, responds, I don't know. I usually look at his trash and see the bottles. This sort of very intense surveillance that get people, um, you know, some people need. But now he started to take out the trash before I come. So I really can't monitor it anymore. But if we put a lid on it, if he drinks only two six packs per week, that would be better. So the team decides that Mary should refuse Ken's request for more money. And the psychiatrist jumps in here and says, well, listen, here's what to say. We've decided that you're drinking, Ken, and we're gonna keep it from, getting, from escalating because we're afraid that you're gonna go back to the way you, you were before. Um, when you lost all that weight and, you know, it was really, really dangerous. Then Mary says, hey, listen, don't we actually give Ed Zander, his other client, $5 a day? And we even see him go to the liquor store right after. Shouldn't we be treating all our clients the same? Right? I mean, she says that she has a rhetorical question. Should we treat all our clients the same or, or treat them differently? But what she really means is, gosh darn, we should treat all our clients the same. Well, the psychiatrist has a very clear answer says, listen, Ken had wasted away. He had alcohol, acute alcoholic hepatitis. His ALT was 1,000, which is the liver function test. So his liver function was through the roof. We had to do something, right? But Ed, he drinks a lot, but his liver function is fine. So we do have degrees of restriction. This is the, 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 the psychiatrist's final point, right? Like a judge, you know, kind of handing down the the... The final word, we do have degrees of restriction. We can let some people get away with more, but the others, we have to help them stay healthier. So uh, we won't do a, a breakout room because this one I think is pretty easy. It's a moral dilemma um, in some ways, a moral dilemma. Should we, so the guy wants more money, should we give him the money or should we withhold the money? Now, the personal motive for giving him the money is this notion of equity, right? We should give him the money, Ken, because Ed, this other client, also gets money. And as far as I'm concerned, we should not play favorites. And then you could push it one step further. There is a textbook principle of, of, of autonomy. It's his money. If he wants to get drunk, he has a right to get drunk, just like any one of us. The other course of action is to withhold the money and the personal motive and the textbook principle are kind of overlap here because we want to keep we, we want to keep them healthy, right? And the textbook principle, we we have to be, we have to protect him from himself. And then the psychiatrist weighs in with the sort of clincher, right? The clincher here is their medical status really does differ. In other words, we're not playing favorites. We're not playing favorites here. One person is able to drink and he, his, liver, his liver function is okay. The other person, he drinks and he almost dies. So the medical status is, the final, is like the final word. So complicated case, but uh, uh, if I recall correctly, when I was doing this research, after this meeting and the psychiatrist kind of presented the, 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 the information, no one had a problem with it. No one, no one, in other words, the issue never came up again. Now compare that case which is issue of equity as a moral dilemma, to the next case, which I call uh, petty cash. So here's another guy, another, another client, uh, Carl Luders. And um, he was admitted to the case management program four years ago after a homeless sweep. Uh, um, 
one, one of these cases, which I, I know happens a lot, where um, neighbor, neighbors, neighbors complain and the sheriff department says, okay, we'll come in. And this, this actually was in a public park. Um, knocked on all the homeless tents and um, try to take, put, put people in various, various programs. So uh, Carl is a 51-year-old man, a long history, long, long history of alcohol abuse, does not currently meet criteria from DSM criteria for, for mental illness. Um, and he does not receive Medicaid or Medicare. So um, his, case his case manager, this guy Tom again, must apply to the county every month for sort of like emergency uh, support, food stamps, a housing allowance, and $100 in spending money. Now, Carl is not well-liked. He's a difficult person. Um, when he gets intoxicated, which is often, he becomes enraged. He threatens the case managers who come to, come to his, uh, his apartment. Um, he's frequently evicted, moves, ends up moving from one apartment to another, refuses to sleep at shelters. What does the team provide for him? Home visits, anger management, but they don't like him. They criticize Carl. They say he's not on money because he doesn't have, in other words, not on Medicaid or Medicare. He does not have a mental illness. He's just an alcoholic. Okay. So they're, they're judgmental. There's no doubt about it. Uh, no matter what we do, he's going to be angry at us. He's going to be disengaged. We're not really monitoring anything because he's not on meds. So the team refuses to spend petty cash to buy him tobacco or household items. So Tom had asked the team, hey, can I spend you know, they have like a little petty cash, um, 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 like a little stash of money. Uh, can I spend some of this money to buy him some tobacco or some things he needs in the house? And they say no. Afterwards, uh, Car uh, Tom talks to me and he says, well, you know, I see engagement as seeing him keeping Carl happy as the main issue. If he had tobacco and a little spending money, he'd be happy for a week. And he is malnourished and suicidal. Um, and we're going to cut back services. He has an equal rank just as much as any other client. He deserves full treatment. And um, Tom then says, well, kind of in frustration and, and anger to me, he says, some clients are just liked more than others and they get an outing, they get extra time. Other clients who aren't liked get nothing. But I cannot bring that to the table and still be employed. It's a quandary with no answer. Now we'll do one final breakout group. We have about an hour left. One final group. And I'd like you to, um, again, go through this as a case of moral distress. And you all know the drill. You know, what, what, is, what is his preferred course of action? Why does he want to do this? What are the obstacles? And then most importantly, at this stage of our training, what are the possible compromises and ways forward? Um, work it through in the standard way now. What does Tom want to do? Why does he want to do it? What's blocking him? And most importantly, is it possible for Tom or the group to somehow find a way forward? And because Tom is on the verge at this stage of, you know, burning out. It's a tough case. And, and actually, I, I do remember in real life, Tom lost, a, he lost that battle. Um, um, he, uh, and he actually was very bitter about it. Um, I, I'm going to say one more thing about this case, though, before before we move on. And um, there is another issue this case raises, which uh, other people, which people have talked about as one of the 
kind of enduring for like one of these like risk factors, you know, the danger zones for um, um, moral distress, especially in dealing with um, actually homeless in individuals. Um, and that's the contradiction between being a patient advocate, and I don't have a slide on this, but I'll, I'll just have to say it, the contradiction between being a patient advocate and a gatekeeper, right? Um, uh, homeless outreach workers, it turns out, um, are, are often allowed, and you, you can tell me if this is the case, you know, say in the chat room, if this is the case for you, um, they're often allowed to give services only to people who meet particular bureaucratic requirements about homelessness, right? So people, uh, outreach workers and you know, case managers, social workers get caught up between this um, conflict between their own personal commitment to repair damaged lives, right? To you know, um, um, help people who are you know, on, living on the margins um, and the demand that they act and the phrase people use is as a street level bureaucrat. So, and there's a book with that title. In other words, they act as a gatekeeper to make sure that the potential recipients of services meet the precise criteria set up by the agency that's funding the program. Let me give an example. There's a, if, there's a great book called Crossing the Border by a sociologist named Michael Rowe. He did research with a, uh, he helped set up and then and did like an evaluation project of homeless outreach workers in, uh, in uh, um, uh, Connecticut, in New Haven. And um, he found when he was, you know, you know, going out with these outreach workers every night, um, you know, they had, they were trained and they had like a, maybe even a list in their pocket of the particular criteria that the Connecticut Department of Health and Human Services, you know, uses to define homelessness. And if they're sitting with a person and it's 10 degrees above zero, this is Connecticut, and um, the person does not meet those criteria, you know, must have, you know, um, um, uh, must have had, um, you know, uh, um, um, inability to find habitable housing for 14 days. Um, and then, you know, or if you've been released from an institution from a jail or prison, you know, um, um, uh, it must be at least 30 days since your release. I mean, these bureaucratic criteria, you're sitting with a person who doesn't meet those criteria. You have a blanket and a sandwich in your van. You can't give that to a person who is technically not homeless by the state criteria. Now I guarantee uh, that that is going to create um, um, moral distress. You know, you're, you you really have to be the gatekeeper and deny people what they need because of your job. So, um, uh, a very difficult situation, especially for people who are working working with um, homeless populations. Let us move on um, and um, review, just review moral distress a little bit. So again, it means when you know the right thing to do, but you can't do it because of institutional constraints, whatever they are, the psychiatrist across the table in a staff meeting, the state criteria for homelessness, you know, um, uh, there's not enough resources, uh, there are no beds open at the psychiatric hospital, whatever those constraints are, make it, they, make them, they make it impossible for you to um, uh, act on your convictions. And so another definition from the textbook, a textbook, it's the emotional and cognitive discomfort you feel when you're blocked from being the person you want to be or doing what you believe is right. Now, let's look at that phrase, blocked from being the person you want to be. It's important to remember that um, the whole situation of moral distress begins when you define 
um, the situation in front of you as you know, kind of having a moral obligation upon you, right? I mean, I look at a, someone who is homeless, it's 10 degrees above zero, they need help. Um, there's a real risk of death. Um, so I'm gonna take on this, I'm gonna take on the obligation. Um, I'm the person who must try, I'm the person here um, who must try to, to decrease the suffering. Um, or I'm the person here and my client has, has having like significant weight gain in the case we talked about earlier. Um, but why do people take on that, um, that obligation? Um, and it's, it's important to th think about, uh, you know, what the job of being working in, you know, outpatient mental health practice, uh, why people choose that job to begin with. And there's a certain self-image. And I want to talk about the, just stick with the number one here on this slide, like why you define this situation as morally significant. It's because people get into this work for certain kinds of reasons. So let's talk about that for a minute. Here's research done um, actually in uh, a sort of community treatment teams in North Carolina. Um, and it's a social worker talking. People don't do this for the money, right? All the money in the world is not enough to, um, to draw someone to the work here. People do it for the love. They do it because of the, you know, they, have, they feel an internal commitment. Another person says, this isn't a job anymore for me. Like it began that way, but it's not a job anymore. It's a life work. It's a vision. It's a mission, it's family. The people I work with, I feel responsible for them. I cannot let them down. And I think most people who work here, most of the staff members who work here, again, a small intensive case management team, they stay here. Those who stay here, they either adopt the mission and the vision or they don't stay, they go, right? So it's a very, the phrase people use, a very moralized workplace. And in many ways, that's a really good thing. But it does, um, but it's complex. Because there are motives that people have for entering the hum entering human services, for um, entering the helping professions, to use an old fashioned phrase. Some of these are avowed motives. In other words, you're conscious of them to alleviate suffering, to transform people's lives. Um, and you, you feel like you have a personal gift or talent for that. Um, and then some of these are unavowed motives. In other words, you don't admit it, them to yourself. Um, maybe you're imitating an important mentor. Um, you might be working through unresolved personal issues, right? Um, you might just want to give advice to other people or to control other people. And you know, human motivation is very complex. And so I'm not. I'm not. I would never. I would never criticize these motives. Um, but it's important to stay stay conscious of them. And the results of the kind of conscious and unconscious motives, the avowed and unavowed ones, is what people call the well-intentioned perspective, right? You see yourself as someone who has good intentions towards the individuals you're working with. Now, this well-intentioned perspective is challenged. It's a preferred self-image. You want to think of yourself in this way, and you are this way, okay? But it's challenged by a number of basic, like unavoidable aspects of a lot of mental health practice jobs. First of all, you have um, limitless responsibility, 
the case managers I knew in community in um, um, community support programs, they took they took responsibility for all aspects of their patients' lives. As a case manager, um, the people I knew were responsible for uh, their clients. Do they have enough bus tickets to get to, to to get to their job or to get to the clinic? Um, are they alive? Um, uh, are they are they housed? You know, on and on and on. You take that responsibility in concrete ways, not abstractly. I mean, you're not somebody sitting in, you know, some state office building in Sacramento um, writing policy about homelessness. You're out there, you know, in the street, face to face, meeting people in their own living space, um, and where you see directly over and over again how much they how much they have and how much they need. Um, in some systems of care, some uh, um, uh, agencies. Uh, um, one stays committed to clients for a very, very long time. Um, actually, assertive community treatment is one of them. Um, it's, it's impossible to, to turf clients, to use the, the, the jargon. You know, um, if the client, if a person becomes too much to handle, the most you could do is to take them, you know, to the local psychiatric hospital and uh, hope for an, 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 an admission. Um, um, or... Um, um, what we call in Wisconsin Chapter 51, that is uh, um, being um, committed to, to treatment outpatient. Um, and finally, you have to respond to clients' expressed needs and their dependence. Um, in many cases, as I observed, um, people themselves don't let you forget how much they need from you or how much they expect you to give them. Um, and many of the case managers I worked with told me that they found the clients actually very demanding in some ways even entitled, having huge expectations about, about you know, what they deserved and huge expectations about the ability of the case manager to solve all their problems. So in other words, limitless responsibility is a big challenge to the well-intentioned perspective. And you know, your job is actually a lot, in this regard, a lot more difficult than that of a, of a physician or a psychiatrist. And, um, because there's a, such a huge gap between what you're able to um, um, accomplish and what the clients need. So you will in some ways never be able to do enough in order to feel like a compassionate and effective person. So, and that, that's a perfect setup for, for moral distress. Um, you know, again, physicians are trained to recognize the absolute limit of their responsibility. Right, physicians do not have a limitless responsibility for, for, for people, even psychiatrists. And here's a passage from a book um, called uh, "Becoming a Doctor: uh, A Journey of Initiation in, in, in Medical School" by a guy named uh, uh, Melvin Connor. Um, now, in this passage, uh, the, he's writing about his first year of residency. Of, of residency, he's uh, training to care for a young man who was just admitted to the ER after a suicide attempt. So let's read it together. So he's he's in the ER. Uh, he's he did an initial workup. The psychiatrist is in charge. The attending is in charge. The psychiatrist had deemed it unfeasible to attempt a civil commitment. Uh, what do we call it? Like a, 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 um, chapter fifty one um, um, in 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 the state. So the young man, the patient, was free to go. I watched him progress down the steps. So he said, "Can I walk?" He walks him out out out, out of the hospital. And beside me, the statue of Galen. Galen is a Greek god of medicine, basically. The statue of Galen stared down. And it's as though the statue was saying, this is not medicine, 
right? What happens from here on out, once this guy leaves the hospital, this is not medicine, this is not my sphere of responsibility. So I watched the young man until he disappeared into the warm night. Now, it's a great passage, right? A little moment in the training of a, of a young psychiatrist. But my sense is that for your work, there is no such um, statue. <laughs> like there's no, there's no one telling you, this is not my sphere, right? Um, if you're in, you know, in there, often like the last person, the, 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 the one connection an, an, an individual client has to you know, a, a system of care, um, doctors are protected from moral distress because they don't have the lim that limitless responsibility. They can say, okay, I take care of what happens in my emergency room and nothing outside of it. So it's a crucial aspect. The limitless responsibility is a crucial kind of setup for moral distress. Now, another um, setup, another reason why the well-intentioned perspective is challenged is that people have, um, you know, uh, um, people who have an MSW or other sorts of uh, um, psychological counseling degrees frankly, sometimes have low authority in the world of other providers and um, institutions and hospitals. The people I worked with, who were mostly social workers, um, would say to me, you know, you know, I know so much about the clients, but no one listens to me. The probation officer doesn't return my phone calls. Um, the staff in the working in the psychiatric hospital ER don't listen to me. Um, they don't bother to tell me when my client is, is, is um, 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 released. Um, I go to the housing program run by the county. They don't want my input about, about what the client needs. So there's a feeling of very like low authority. Um, and of course, there's also a feeling of low authority from the individuals that you're working with. People will not take their meds, right? They might refuse. Um, um, their lives are too chaotic uh, or they spend time in jail and the meds are taken away from them. Lots of, there's, you're trying to do so much with so little authority. Um, and then as, as we've seen, there is a contradiction be between what um, um, program mandates and what, and, and, and what people say they need. So I guess I said that already. Um, people refuse what the program says they should have. So if you add it all together, there's a perfect storm of moral distress. I think there are these basic, unavoidable aspects of your jobs, which set people up in a, uh, in, in a very bad way to feel distress and the inability to, to, to do anything about it. There's the preferred self-image as compassionate, right? The well-intentioned perspective. There's the situation that um, often it's a person in some ways um, with the least responsibility, at least um, power in an organization who has the most responsibility for the clients. Um, just as an example of that, in the set setting where I worked, there were, as I said, nine case managers, one psychiatrist. The psychiatrist would come in uh, twice a week and have um, at most 20 minute med check sessions with, um, with the clients. The case managers, by contrast, were there, of, of course, 40 to 50 hours a week and would see the, some of the clients every single day for an hour, right? So um, a lot of responsibility. Long-term relationships with the clients, uh, which may or may not fit your particular situation, um, but if it does, um, you know, you're, you're, you're in there for life with them. And then low authority, 
Um, so how does one respond to these unavoidable aspects of your job? How do you navigate that perfect storm? Here's what I suggest. Um, when you fall into a situation of moral distress, kind of take a deep breath and try to get some distance on it just for five minutes and say, well, what is going on here? Is this a moral dilemma or moral distress? Okay. Um, and if it's moral distress and you know, use the kind of conceptual tools that we've been talking about all morning, if it is a case of moral distress, um, learn how to recognize it when it happens. You know, learn the definition and ask yourself, am I feeling discomfort? Am I feeling embarrassed? Am I feeling frustrated? Um, uh, and um, are there actually physical signs and symptoms? Am, am I, am, is, this, is this bothering my sleep? You know, um, um, and am I, um, living through some of the consequences of moral distress? And do I notice myself getting kind of numb to each new case? Um, do, 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 do I notice myself uh, burning out? Look around you, is there staff turnover that is higher than it should, that is higher than it should be? Um, then I would say, uh, analyze the conflict, right? And analyze the case. What is going on here that is making me feel so bad? Um, what is, it, what is it that I want to do? How is it being blocked? Why do I want to do this, right? What other personal or social issues are involved here? You know, something which we have not talked about today because I want to focus so closely on individual experience is, you know, the social context, right? What is going on with funding decisions? What is going on with um, 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 the way cities are evolving? What is going on with um, um, citizen police relationships? What is going on with efforts, efforts to um, um, other other kinds of political efforts to um, uh, um, overcome, you know, the the racist and racialized forms of suffering that all of us deal with, right? So, what is happening here, from like kind of the personal to the political, is helpful you know, to really get into the weeds. What is actually the uh, conflict that is um, making me feel so bad. Now, is it a, if it's a case of, of a moral dilemma, are there competing principles, right? And sometimes it does help to think of these things in terms of, you know, I wanna help the client, I wanna preserve the client's independence, I wanna help the client, I want to um, 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 make sure that they don't hurt themselves. You know, there's autonomy competing with a sense of, you know, benevolent, protection. I'm not saying these are easy principles to square, right? The conflict is not easy to solve, but simply to like have the words to say it, simply having the words to say it can some can sometimes bring bring um, bring some clarity. Is it a conflict between what I want to do and what the workplace is telling me I must do? You know, think of the uh, um, pro-life, uh, pro-choice case we had. Um, um, and who is it in the workplace that is um, blocking me from acting out, acting according to my own uh, conscience? 
is it a conflict between um, what I feel the client needs and what I want to give to, to the client versus the program guidelines, right? Which may be in, in, in actually the second and third kind of uh, uh, issues here might, um, might overlap. Is this a conflict, conflict between um, having to uh, wanting to advocate for the client in the face of the client's own enemies or you know, oppressive institutions or being a gatekeeper? And regarding this, this, this fourth point, the core conflict, I remember reading once that social work in particular is always gets caught in the horns of this dilemma, right? Because a social worker is supposed to advocate for an individual kind of against social forces and it's supposed to advocate for the state and, and public security to some extent against the individual. And anybody who works in child protective services, for example, um, or any kind of domestic violence um, DV court um, is always caught on the horns of this issue, right? I mean, there's a, um, 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 whose side are you on, right? Whose side are you on? Sometimes it's very difficult to, to, uh, to, balance, to balance the needs. Then I would say, make moral distress an open topic, right, for discussion. As I said before, I think one of the one of the worst things that can happen is that moral distress is afflicting people um, and is never um, articulated. There's there's no place, there's no safe place, there's no special time that's dedicated to talking about these issues. Um, um, let me say one more thing about this. Um, I mean, this could happen in staff meetings. It could happen in one-on-one in one um, um, dialogues between people. In my opinion, uh, a, one of the jobs of a supervisor or like a lead person in an agency would be, you know, on a relatively, what's the word I want, um, 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 scheduled basis, like once a month, to check in with people, especially like new employees, to ask them about this. Because unless for a new, I'm thinking especially about a new employee, unless somebody asks, are you experiencing these issues? Um, you're never going to, the new employee is probably never going to um, introduce it him or herself. Um, my experience working in, uh, as a researcher is that the only time it became, these issues became a, an open topic for discussion was when I was asked to present kind of little summaries about what I was finding in my research. And uh, they would carve out, you know, ten or fifteen minutes in a staff meeting and say, "Okay, Paul, here's, you know, you know, uh, um, 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 tell us your response to what you're learning." And I would talk about these cases. Excuse me, even some of the ones that I've, I've talked about today. And I'll never forget when this clinical supervisor in that agency said, kind of sat back in her chair and said, "You know, um, when you when you, when I hear this, like right now." I remember, yes, this one case had an issue like about you know, gatekeeping for resources that has come up over and over again in the past five years. And I've never thought about it you know, from, from a more distance perspective. In other words, I was never able to rise up from the, the particular crisis management mode I'm usually in to say, oh yeah, we did see this last year. We did see this two years ago. And this is how we handled it then. Maybe we can draw on our kind of common experience or collective experience to handle it in the same way now. And it's only when I, I mean, just, just by chance, really, I mean, I, I, I did not expect this, but it was only when they gave me 10 minutes to talk that they said, you know, yeah, we, sh you know, you know, there, there, there are these recurring issues. Um, otherwise, they were never talked about at all, at all. 
And um, I think um, finding ways to honor individual conscience and to advocate for, and to advocate for, for the client are really important. Um, and even if they're partial or deferred. And let me just think back to you know what we were talking about today. Um, um, some of the ways that people did find, in a sense, you know, partial, deferred, baby steps um, um, that you know helped avoid that all-or-nothing approach. Um, people talked about um, in the case of Ben Taft, you know, the fast food case, lowering the calories, keeping on delivering fast food, but by relatively more healthy meals, okay? Or doing a short walk so he can get what he wants and burn some calories at the same time. I mean, it's so, in a sense, it's so concrete, you know? And, and, and when you say it, it's so simple. But the trouble is, um, in case after case that I, I lived through, um, the simple concrete stuff, somehow it didn't appear to people because to some extent, um, both sides would get their back up against a wall. And here is, we're talking about like small group dynamics, you know, some of the toxic things that happen in, 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 you know, in, in a work group, in a workplace. I think what happens sometimes is that the uh, individual case manager who then, you know, was already feeling moral distress would come into the meeting and um, um, have an all or nothing at all approach saying, well, you know, kind of have a, what's the word you want? Um, um, kind of already kind of imagined the, the, the staff meeting to be a um, kind of one against a hundred sort of um, 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 conflict. And the staff meeting, and, and I should say the rest of the staff um, were pretty confident that they knew the answer before they had all the facts. And, uh, the, and the two sides ended up, you know, just barely talking to each other. Um, and then when you, when, you know, what we've done this morning, we've had the luxury, you know, of a big chunk of time without a crisis um, um, crashing over our heads at the time, you know, at, at the moment, without needing to solve these problems, you know, for real by 5 p.m. We've had the luxury to like, look at them from different points of view and see that, you know, there are ways of uh, there are ways ways of moving forward that sort of satisfies company policy, sort of satis sort of satisfies um, my own commitment to the client. Nobody's perfectly happy at the end of the day, but that's the very definition of a compromise. That's the very definition of what of what of what it means to move forward um, while honoring the interests and the you know competing goals um, that um, that everybody does feel. Um, I think uh, this is one example, one place where moral distress and dealing with it in 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 a, in a staff meeting does kind of resemble bioethics. Because if anybody has ever sat on uh, or known about um, a bioethics and ethics consultation committee in a hospital setting, um, ethics consultation committees are basically ways to search for acceptable compromises, where everybody leaves a little disappointed. Right. Everybody walks away from the table a little disappointed, but um, satisfied enough that the workday can, 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 can continue and people feel like their voice has been heard. Um, I mean, that's a crucial thing to, to, to do here. Um, if, by the way, you would like to take these um, case studies, which you have in the PDF, and use them in your own workplace, that would be fine. 
that would be great. You know, if if um, if you can, if you're if you're a lead or a supervisor, and you think it's worthwhile to take like one case, and you you could chop it down. You know, don't not a three hour you know extravaganza, but take one case, take twenty minutes, and say, okay, today we'll work through this twenty minutes case. It's a fake fake in the sense of it's not our case, right? It's not your particular client. Uh, we don't have to solve this you know problem by twelve noon today. So take take a twenty minute take, take what we were talking about here, turn it into a twenty minute like um, you know in service training session, um, a case that is nobody's responsibility at the time, and that for that reason people will you know may have like the brains might open a little bit. There may be there may be um, um, you you will set in motion um, an alternative to the all or nothing approach and the crisis management approach, which often dominates in these settings. So finally, my last slide here, my two favorite uh, proverbs, for, to, to navigate the perfect storm of moral distress, remember that for every complex problem, there is an answer that is simple, elegant, and wrong. And um, moral complexity is part of all helping professions. Um, and um, the, the, the simple, elegant answer, you know, obey company policy, whatever, and to the letter, you know, may not be sufficient. And the simple answer, obey your own ethical instincts, no matter what the consequences, simple, elegant, and wrong. So uh, uh, have some appreciation for moral complexity. And finally, don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Uh, that's one of my rules for life. Um, and a good enough response to moral distress is usually possible. Good enough, again, leaving people somewhat disappointed, but allowing the work, for, the, the work day to go ahead. Now that is all I have to say to you. And if, of course, if you want to, I would really appreciate any comments you have. There's my email address uh, um, at any time. Do you think these ideas make sense? Do you think you could repackage some of this stuff and turn it into a 15 or 20 minute in-service training in, in, your, in your own workplace? Um, are there case studies you'd like to, I may well do this kind of thing again. Are there case studies you'd like to see issues that were not addressed here? Uh, the floor is yours. Someone says, it is important to consider that case managers were the hub or the coordinator that links clients to all these other services. The other services are not talking to each other. Absolutely, right? Case managers are like the, the broker for services. The people, you know, housing, psychiatry, finances, welfare, um, um, probation officer, they don't speak to each other. That is absolutely that is absolutely true. That's another source of frustration. And I, I'm going to jot that down. Um, um, and if you spend all your time translating what the probation officer says to the psychiatrist, for the psychiatrist, you won't have any time to do anything else, you know, in your day. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, um, it's actually simply telling these other people, the other spokes, that there are like eight other spokes to the wheel might help. Let me say that it's been my pleasure to to work with you all today and and to share and to share these these ideas. Um, FYI, my current project is working on um, actually ways of keeping people with severe mental illness out of jail. Um, so kind of chip away at the mass incarceration issue. Um, and um, if that is an interest of yours and uh, or if there's a, a need for this sort of training specific, specifically with regards to criminal justice involved people, um, please contact me. Thank you very much. Take care.